Welcome everyone to this, the third of our Summer Rare Book School lectures, part of our cascade of educational programming, RBS Online, some 60 free events of several kinds this summer, all aimed at enriching the bibliographical and book historical community. We are excited to have Aisha Ramachandran with us this evening, though very sorry indeed that we could not host her in person in Charlottesville. After being graduated with highest honors in English from Smith College, she was awarded her PhD with distinction in English and Renaissance studies by Yale University. Formerly a junior fellow of the Harvard Society of Fellows, she is now an associate professor of comparative literature at Yale. Her book, The World Makers, Global Imagining in Early Modern Europe, published in 2015 by the University of Chicago Press, won the Aldo and Janine Scaglioni Prize in Comparative Literary Studies from the Modern Language Association, as well as the Founders Prize for Best First Book Manuscript in Any Discipline from the 16th Century Studies Association. In 2016, she added the prestigious Mellon New Directions Fellowship to her long list of honors. She has written on Petrarch, Renaissance literary criticism, Aristos Orlando Furioso, on Padmanabha's Harvest, Mercator, Milton, Descartes, and Edmund Spencer. Her current book project, Lyric Thinking, Humanism, Selfhood, Modernity, argues for the central importance of lyric form and language in shaping new intellectual possibilities for the self in the early modern period and beyond. But this evening, she will address a very eager Zoom audience on a very different topic by offering an alternative history of the atlas. Thank you, Michael. I'm going to share my screen now. Okay. Um, thank you so much for that, Michael. And thank you so much uh, to the uh, Rare Book School for inviting me and encouraging me for many, many years on my own uh, journey through thinking about bibliography and book history and my forays into maps. And it's with great pleasure uh, that I'm sharing what is really work in progress uh, and an effort to think for uh, some quite some time now about uh, the place of atlases, the history of atlases, and the place more broadly of maps and map making in a conversation about book history. Um, so, so I'm going to get started and I'm going to probably read a little bit, talk a little bit as I go through these maps. And I hope that uh, people will ask questions in the chat as we go along. There are a lot of images which I won't have time to talk about in detail as I speak today, but I will be delighted to go back to in the Q&A. Um, so my talk today centers on a familiar conundrum in cartographic and bibliographic history. What are the origins of the world atlas? This is apparently a long settled question, depending on who one asks. Um, I'm going to pause for a moment here. Depending on who one asks, 
And how one defines the term atlas, the answer is either 1750, when Abraham Ortelius publishes the first edition of the Theatrum Arbisterarum, or 1595, when Gerhard Mercator's atlas, the book that gives the genre its name, is posthumously published by his sons and grandsons. In either case, this is a Northern European story, a tale of the triumph of the printing press and book market, and of the key role played by the Plantin Press in circuits of knowledge production among cartographers in late 16th century Europe. It is also a distinctly Renaissance story about the triumph of humanist learning, a tale about the recovery of a classical text, in this case, Ptolemy's geography, and the ways in which it precipitates intellectual transformation. For the very idea of the world atlas grows out of increasingly burgeoning editions of Ptolemy, which included new maps to supplement the ancient Ptolemaic corpus. These accounts are foundational in the history of cartography, of world making, and of print history. And they envision the atlas itself as a distinctive cartobibliographical object. And here we are, a big bound folio volume you can see here, usually filled with maps and miscellaneous information, a fixed reference work that establishes a distinct vision of the world. But atlas today has a quite different valence. Atlases are arguably not even books, or text technologies, but are more readily classified as data visualizations or spatial technologies. On a disciplinary spectrum, they live closer to mathematics and data science than to rhetoric, history, or bibliography. And in their quest to fix the world through ever more precise and minute data points, the contemporary digital atlas appears to have drifted to the far margins of book history, flirting rather with computer science and media studies instead. Is there any connection between the tale of the atlas's emergence of the 16th century and the challenges of theorizing the atlas as a bibliographical object and an epistemic instrument today? In my lecture this evening, I am going to explore an alternate story about the atlas that seeks to bridge the divide between analog and digital, modern and pre-modern book histories. In contrast to the print-centric Northern European story I began with, I focus on Portland charts, the scramble for empire, the affordances of manuscripts, of small-scale individual artisans, and the surprising intermedial engagements of cartography then and now. Between about 1550 and 1575, um, a number of Portland-style manuscript map compilations, now known as universal atlases, were produced by Portuguese mapmakers, most famously Diogo Omen and Fernão Vaz Durado. Evoking the Portland charts of the 14th and 15th centuries, such as this one, but also incorporating intricate details of land and land masses and inland seas, much like later printed maps, these sumptuous objects seem both like a historical anachronism and a harbinger of the Enlightenment. As manuscript maps on parchment, they allude in their visual rhetoric to late medieval navigational maps of the Mediterranean familiar from works such as this 1492 Portland um, chart of the Mediterranean, but in their clean mathematical framing and complete erasure of an explanatory textual apparatus, which persisted into print atlases in the 17th century, they share an aesthetic and intellectual kinship with these universal atlases of the 18th century. The term universal atlas itself is an anachronistic description for these objects, for atlas universalis is in fact a late 17th century coinage applied retrospectively by modern collectors to this unique corpus. To grasp just how strange these objects are in the history of cartography, let me propose a contemporary analogy. 
to be making hand-drawn vellum maps, a manuscript maps in Venice, the leader of map printing in the mid-16th century, as did Diogo Mem of Fernão Vaz Durado, would have been like making limited edition LPs today in the age of Spotify or Apple. Uh, and I, I want to emphasize how strategic and significant this is because Diogo Mem in particular is making these luxury map objects in uh, a small Venetian context where printed maps are being produced uh, for book consumption and for binding um, right alongside his own actual workshop. The case of Vaz Durado is even more curious. How exactly was a Portuguese Indian colonial official able to make state-of-the-art maps in Goa far away from the European metropolitan capitals like Lisbon, Antwerp, or Venice, traditionally thought to be centers for map production, and then have those very maps used as the basis for printed Dutch maps back in Europe within a decade of their production. For all their seeming signs of technological obsolescence, these retro collector's items also somehow turn out to have been part of the intellectual avant-garde, pointing the conceptual way for the shaping of the first printed world atlases that would appear almost contemporaneously. Ortelius's 1570 uh, Theatrum Arbis Terrarum that you see here, and thereafter, Mercator's 1595 Atlas. How do we understand the emergence of this unique form, the integrated manuscript map set that looks in retrospect like a world atlas? And how can we make sense of the disruption it presents to our progressivist histories of the period that routinely trace the arc from manuscript to print, from the copyist's hand to the printer's press, and from art to science? Not surprisingly, perhaps, these Portuguese universal atlases have been labeled cartographic curiosities and remain collectors' prizes. They are niche objects for a specialized market that resists assimilation into grand historical or theoretical narratives about epistemic or political change. Indeed, they are often invoked as single sheets in reference to specific geographic, geographical data or used to illustrate the development of Portuguese knowledge of South America and Asia. But while they have typically been instrumentalized as merely historical documents, records of geopolitical or cartographical progress or Portuguese cartographic primacy, they are also objects that self-consciously theorize the large-scale vision and that reflect quite intentionally on the making of universalizing categories. Today, I will suggest that by understanding these map sets as a distinct kind of object, simultaneously a genre and a tool, and thus self-consciously produced as epistemic wholes, we can trace a different genealogy for the world atlas, one embedded in the global maritime networks spawned by the Portuguese empire in Asia, and which usefully challenges our narratives about humanism and knowledge formation in the early modern period. At the same time, the form and format of these universal atlases, their peculiar in-betweenness in terms of technology, media, and audiences, offer a historical mirror for understanding the challenges and potentials of digital atlases in our current time. In focusing on these Portuguese map sets, I should note that I am not interested in making claims for national primacy, though of course there's much to be said about the distribution of historical authority between Northern and Southern Europe, and that's a question I'm happy to talk about later in the Q&A. Instead today, I want to raise questions about how we understand the making of large-scale universalizing forms of knowledge, what I call the process of making universals. More specifically, I want to consider the role that book history plays in creating and sustaining such universalizing forms of knowledge. There is, of course, a political point to this. Who and what we center determines who and what we see. 
to deconstruct how the aggregation of many small pieces of information, bits of data, are strategically brought together to craft a vision of the whole is to enable us to see who and what exactly is included and left out. Nor is this more obvious than in the creation of atlases, for the world atlas as a genre instantiates with iconic force the intellectual assumptions, choices, priorities, and perspectives that are built into the very frameworks that help us conceptualize and organize information from the minutest detail to the macrocosmic totality. The importance of this question is perhaps best illustrated by looking briefly at the most important kind of atlas, of, of atlas today, map collections that display the global spread of COVID-19, which I've come to think of as pandemic atlases. The best known of these is the Johns Hopkins COVID dashboard with its ArcGIS map that displays the data on COVID cases from across the world. But this map, a spatialized data visualization, is also an atlas. By zooming in, the world map is revealed to be a map of layers, and any individual can produce detailed views of any part of the world. In this sense, the COVID map constructs a particular vision of the world based on a specific set of data, one that in this case programmatically does not, quote, include data on age, gender, nationality, or other demographic information. And it's worth pointing out here that the choice to not include that data produces a very distinct vision of the world, showing us what it is we are actually looking at or interested in and occluding or erasing or making unavailable other kinds of information that might shift the way in which we understand what this atlas is actually showing us uh, about the world. I bring in this extremely contemporary example as a framing device with which to return to the 16th century in order to highlight the stakes of atlas making and even of calling a map set an atlas. We might in fact ask what, what exactly is an atlas? Can we apply that generic term to such varied objects as the Portuguese manuscript universal atlases, Mercator's printed atlas, and the digital shifting Hopkins COVID dashboard? As authoritative collections of images that identify a discipline's core sub-objects of inquiry, atlases, as Lorraine Daston and Peter Gallison note, quote, set standards for how phenomena are, are to be seen and depicted. They offer a pictorial taxonomy and calibrate the collective eye by establishing, quote, how to describe, how to depict, how to see. Atlases of the world in particular face a unique challenge. Not only are they charged with defining and authorizing a particular conception of the world, but in order to do so, they have to transform an invisible abstraction into a visible scientific object that can sustain investigation. Thus, if an atlas had to imitate the world's structure through the artful organization of its parts, the mapmaker's compositional problem at the level of the object, that is how to arrange a collection of maps in an atlas, acquires a metaphysical dimension since it seeks to reflect the deep structure of the world itself. To fix the order of the atlas, as would Mercator, would in fact be to provide a stable vision, a theory of the world. Conversely, to resist such suturing and to embrace instead the more open-ended possibilities of the loose map set, as do the Portuguese manuscript atlases, or indeed the COVID dashboard, is to invoke another radically decentered possibility. It is this alternative possibility that I will explore in the rest of my time today. As a quick example, we might compare the composition of the 1570 Ortelius Theatrum Arbisterarum, usually invoked as the first world atlas, with the 1570 Vajdurado manuscript atlas, from which, of which I've given you a sheet here. Note that there is no world map in the Vaz Durado Atlas, which I could compare to the opening world map from the Ortelius 
um, theatrum. In the entire manuscript, there, there isn't a single compiled vision of what the world actually looks like, no breakdown of the world by continents or any emphasis on European terrain. Instead, the Vaz Duradu Atlas offers a quite equitable distribution across the globe's surface, though inevitably organized in a manner that privileges Portuguese interests. It begins with a chart of South America, followed by Europe and Africa, then the Indian Ocean and Southeast Asia, before concluding with maps of North America. We might even see here the traces of a navigational imagination that aggregated familiar maritime routes. The Ortelius Atlas, on the other hand, opens with a world map and maps of the four continents and includes 47 maps of Europe. I will return to the differences between these two styles of atlas, but I want to note for now how this basic distribution makes visible how alternate forms of organizing knowledge with their attendant choices could be applied to similar sets of data. Both atlases descend to us as remnants of a parallel epoch of information explosion and new global consciousness, which faced a similar challenge as our own moment of integrating a plethora of new details into a coherent big picture whole. But instead of consolidating information about a newly outward looking European center and emphasizing the extra European marginality of other places, the manuscript atlases insist on dialectical and scalar juxtapositions. In their oceanic imagination, which resists now traditional divisions of the world into continents, and with their accompanying astronomical and tidal tables, the Portuguese universal atlases suggest multiple mobile strategies for analysis and synthesis. For these maps were not bound in a specific order, but could be displayed in various configurations. I want to suggest, in other words, that we might see in these maps an intriguing alternative to our own current means of making universals, that is of conceptualizing large-scale frameworks for critical analysis and cultural self-understanding, one that is plural, decentered, and flexible. Let me turn then to, to the atlases of Omem and Vaz Duradu. Little is known of the Portuguese mapmaker Diogo Omem, though he was one of the most prolific, or of his younger contemporary Fernão Vaz Duradu, a Goan Portuguese of mixed race. The main scholarly source for both remains the mammoth Portugaliae Monumenta Cartographica, and there is little direct scholarship on their maps. Diogo was the son of Lopo Omem, patriarch of one of the three most influential houses or schools of Portuguese cartography, who served as the chief cosmographer to the Portuguese crown in the first half of the 16th century. But unlike his illustrious father, Diogo fled Portugal in the mid-1540s and spent an itinerant life in England, France, and Italy, settling eventually in Venice, where he seems to have spent most of his life. Of the extant corpus of 144 charts identified to be in Omem's hand, five are so-called universal atlases produced between 1558 and 1568. These include the Queen Mary Atlas, now in the British Library, possibly commissioned by Queen Mary for Philip II, an unsigned atlas dated to the mid-1560s, now in the Russian National Library in St. Petersburg, the mutilated 1568 Dresden Atlas, an is now in the Bibliothèque Nationale in France. Omem appears to have been best known for his European and Mediterranean charts, which were much prized, but which have somehow overshadowed his world atlas sets, even though as the son of Lopo, one of the makers of the sumptuous Miller Atlas, he was well positioned to develop the form. Unlike Omem, who was born into a prominent metropolitan map-making family business, Vaz Duradu was a colonial subject. The son of Juan Francisco Duradu, who moved to Goa in 1513 as a Mosso da Camera, just three years after the Portuguese conquest, 
Fernão followed his father into service in the Estado da India, fighting in the second siege of Diu, and earning the title of fronteiro, or the governor of a border fort. At some point, and it remains unclear how or when, Vaz Gerardo acquired mapmaking expertise. Though his extant body of work consists of six universal atlases, produced in a short period between 1568 and 1580, their skill, fineness of execution, and grasp of the most current state of the Portuguese empire suggests a long period of apprenticeship. This may have been acquired from his older contemporary, Lazaro Luis, also active in Goa in the same period, and known to be the maker of a noteworthy 1563 manuscript atlas. Uh, and I should note here that much research remains to be done on uh, the context in which maps were actually produced uh, in Goa, uh, and obviously an important, the capital of the Portuguese empire in Asia. Um, but we know little about the conditions that made it possible for map makers to apprentice, learn, or acquire the materials to produce these objects um, there in the early 16th century. The earliest cartographic record of Vaz Duradu is the 1568 atlas dedicated to Don Luis de the Viceroy of India. And this and two more atlases produced in 1570 and 71 are all signed and marked as made in Goa. Around 1571, he appears to have sailed to, visit, to Lisbon with the Viceroy, producing two atlases there, one dedicated to the young king, Sebastião. Uh, but he then returned to Goa, where he made one more atlas before his death. Among the most significant features of the Vaz Duradu corpus is its especially up-to-date and detailed uh, depictions of Southeast Asia, probably gleaned through official channels, and its influence shows up in later printed maps included in the 1587 Ortelius Atlas, and possibly also in maps illustrating Jan Huygens van Linschoten's itinerario published in 1596. Both the Homem and the Vaz Duradu atlases, though stylistically different from each other, emerge from the tradition of the Portolano, navigational charts developed in the late Middle Ages to facilitate travel around the Mediterranean. Uh, and here's an example of uh, a sort of late 15th century um, Portland chart uh, with its distinctive orientation, its focus here on coastal cities, uh, and its focus on uh, maritime trade routes um, or um, shipping routes. Though often considered technology that was rapidly becoming obsolete by the recovery of Ptolemy and New World exploration, the bottle and chart as a cartographic form persisted into the 17th century and is a striking example of the stability of knowledge transfer across time. These were typically maps copied from other such maps rather than redrawn to encode new information. Dick Federer, for instance, has shown that the charts do not record shifts in magnetic declination over centuries, which would be crucial for use with compass navigation. They have thus been considered as a distinctive corpus unrelated in any significant way to the Ptolemaic cartographic revolution of the 16th century. That is, they, see, they have seemed insulated from the innovations in map projection, design, and accommodation of the new American continents that characterize much of the cartographic output from the 1490s to 1600. However, tracking the development of the genre of the manuscript universal atlases from the 1519 Miller Atlas onward makes clear that this was not the case. Particularly in the Portuguese context, Portland and Ptolemaic maps were in a dynamic dialogue as cosmographers sought to modify and reimagine the Portland template of Mediterranean voyages for global deep sea navigation. The iconic 1527 Padrão Real of Diogo Ribeiro offers an early example of what we might call the affordances of the Portland style for the new cosmography. It is no accident, too, that Mercator's landmark 1569 world map 
uh, which introduces the new Mercator projection, also returns to the, to the Portland style. Two late 16th century Portlands held in the Beinecke Library at Yale, both with inset world maps, suggest the extent to which these charts drew on the parallel Ptolemaic tradition. And I should say here that one of the um, collateral damage problems of COVID has been that I was simply not able to get images of these Portland maps in the Beinecke's collections because the libraries are closed and there is no way we can actually get images anymore. So I'm afraid I'm going to simply have to describe them for you and you are going to have to imagine what these Portland maps um, with inset maps of the world actually might, might look like. So especially significant for an intermedial history of maps is a badly damaged anonymous Portland recently acquired by the Beinecke, which has a crudely drawn inset world map, uh, which uh, is clearly based on Artelius's typus Arbus Terrarum. Uh, and I should, I, I should say here that the, the funny story of discovering this involved being in a conversation with other curators and map experts on this Portland with this odd, crudely drawn world map. And having worked extensively on the Ocellius Atlas, my first thought was, I have seen this map before. Um, and when we looked at it closely with the Ocellius uh, map side by side, it was very clear that the map maker of this anonymous portland that may have hung for a long time on the door of a tavern, uh, in fact, had, must have been looking at the print version of this map to be able to depict it on uh, this manuscript portland. When we think about the relationship between the production of these manuscript portlands side, side by side with the print map books that are being produced often in the same places, often at the same time, uh, the conversation between portland maps and the print history of cartography becomes dynamic and complex. Uh, it's unclear how these, how these connections took place the history of cartography and bibliography have kept these two subjects distinct. And looking at these things side by side asks us to think about the ways in which these different media and these different networks of production intersected over and over again. Between Ribeiro and Mercator's maps, 70 years apart, we see the emergence of a new concept of the earth as a terraqueous entity, a composite of land and water, which demanded the mapping of continental land as well as of the oceans. While Ptolemaic maps remained focused on land masses and political territories, as had much classical geography, the newly expanded extra Mediterranean portalands, which reached their representational pinnacle in the later manuscript atlases of Omem and Basduradu, responded to the Iberian forays into transatlantic travel and the desire to circumnavigate the world by reconceiving the sea itself as a crucial space to be conquered. We can appreciate the impact of these two distinct visions by comparing the Ruscelli printed maps of the world with the Omem Vazduradu atlases. Where Ruscelli here juxtaposes an old and new map of the world, marking the shift from the Ptolemaic to post-Columbian spatiality in terms of continental organization, Vazduradu does not include a world map in any of his atlas sets, including in instead detailed views of oceanic routes and islands. And you can note here the striking blank spaces on these map sheets with just sort of with um, a little bit of the islands marked across vast terrains that are oceanic. I should say terrain and oceanic, obviously, paradoxically not uh, useful vocabulary for talking about uh, spaces in these, in these atlases. While the 1565 OMEM atlas does include a kind of map painting of the world, and here's a facsimile version of that, um, it is one that depicts with uncanny accuracy the coastlines of India and North America several decades before they would be portrayed as such on printed maps. 
The actual maps in these atlases also tend to emphasize the seas, as for instance, these maps from the 1588 Queen Mary Atlas and the Dresden Atlas. What I want to emphasize here is the difference, is the difference of epistemic perspective. That is the different emphases of these maps make visible different kinds of knowledge. The Beinecke portlands from the early 1590s, uh, which I unfortunately could not show you, with their miniature inclusion of the world beyond the Mediterranean, acknowledge the breaking of the tight frame of the ancient world and the intermingling of the two cartographic forms, suggesting complementarity as well as a fundamental difference between the orders of knowledge that they encode. The Portuguese manuscript atlases frame their subject as a substantively, in a substantively different register than does, for instance, Ortelius's Theatrum, or even this later Hongius Mercator map of 1635. Where the world is here framed by portraits of famous ancients and their modern counterparts, and cloaked in the physical theory of the four elements, Omem's map is also illustrated instead, using imagery to enfold recent ethnographic information. And you can see here the information about uh, peoples of, the, of West Africa, of animals, and uh, here in the map of um, um, Eastern Africa, the images of natural land features described again from cosmographies of the period. Though long considered no more than decorative elements, my own study of these maps point to quite specific borrowings, probably from Ramuzio and Joao de Barros, translated from text to image in a manner familiar from the woodcuts that accompany travel narratives, a practice with which Omem, who worked in Venice in the shadow of the printers Ramuzio and Gastaldi, would have been familiar. Similarly, the gold leaf pagodas in Basuradu's 1571 map of Southeast Asia is an unusual addition, signaling key cities possibly described in recent accounts. Unlike the printed cosmographies of which these manuscript atlases are contemporaries, however, there is no elaborate humanist explication, just visual icons to signify new knowledge. Hover uncertainly between the fantastic creatures of tradition and more precise eyewitness details, these illuminated details mark the passage from old forms of knowledge to the new. Thus, unlike the conception of the world in Ortelius's theatrum, which re remains enmeshed in the classical view, the map sets of Omem and Basduradu do not come with any extra textual glosses. The 1570 print atlas uh, here is a humanist editor's dream and a philologist's delight. The text introducing the world map, for instance, lists ancient and modern sources, while the map itself is framed here with quotations from Cicero and Seneca. This is a world envisioned and theorized by Ptolemy, Pliny, Strabo, Solinus, Pomponius Mela, Dionysus Afer, Eustatius, Apuleius, and uh, Diodorus Siculus, among a long list of others. By contrast, the Omen Vazduradu maps barely even offer titles, uh, rather than being anchored in classical sources, and they are accompanied by these mathematical tables to plot the sun, stars, and tides. There is perhaps no more starkly emblematic contrast between older humanistic forms of knowledge and newer empirical ones, but here the media are reversed. Print, fixes and propagates the authority of the ancients. Manuscript enables the flex flexible record of knowledge in the making, the province of artisans, sailors, and colonial officials working on the ground. These stylistic and paratextual distinctions track a gradual generic transition from the cosmography to the atlas. The most obvious difference between the two lies in their attitude to text and image. Cosmographies remain primarily textual books, 
using maps and strategic illustrations, while atlases privilege the graphic image, relegating the text to an explanatory gloss. If, as several scholars have argued, the cosmography is the defining mode of the 16th century with its centripetal energies of synthesis, and the atlas becomes the standard of the 18th century, fueled by a centrifugal drive to analyze, the visual rhetoric of the Omem Vaz Duradu map sets are strikingly akin to the latter. Their aesthetic similarity to the, to the 1793 world map from Gilles Robert de Vaugondy's Atlas Universel, an important example of French Enlightenment cartography, is arresting. Gerhard Mercator's Atlas, um, excuse me, the first book to be named as such, offers a powerful vision of the genre as a unified metaphysical ideal produced by a human maker who resembles God. The Mercator Atlas opens with a long creation narrative, placing the maps that follow within a stable scheme of divine order, one that privileges Europe and the Christian world. And you can see here the vision of Atlas as the map maker um, and the mythological king who commanded knowledge of the universe and the frontispiece of the page echoes many of the of just depictions of uh, God the Father in Renaissance painting, holding the world in two hands. But in the Portuguese map sets, we see the emergence of a different kind of universal atlas, one that is plural, mobile, and unsettled. There is no portrait of the maker except for our marginal signature on particular sheets and no elaborate embedding into a long classical tradition. Juxtaposition, the ability to set various images alongside each other in changing patterns, seems essential to the conception of these works. They exploit the potentials of unbound sheets. And you can note in the slide, the thickness of the bound folio volume of Mercator's Atlas versus uh, the singularity of the Atlas sheet of this uh, um, map of Southeast Asia from the set. They exploit the potential of unbound sheets, the possibility for rearrangement, and thus for new ways of seeing. While a single world map may serve as a guide, individual maps zoom in at different angles, offering different perspectives and kinds of knowledge about individual parts of the world. In playing so flamboyantly with scale, they force us to move from a vision of the whole to the part and to consider how they are related. Scalar disruptions, I would argue, are intentional and not a marker of mathematical lack. They invite us to see the world not as a unified, unitary whole, but from different points of view. Beyond their distinctive representational style, however, the Omem and Vaz Duradu atlases are fundamentally different in their composition than their contemporary print atlases. Each map set is between 18 and 25 sheets, a slim grouping that offers a sharp contrast to the increasingly burgeoning cosmographical atlas. I want to take a moment to walk you through two sets of the two of these map sets, the 1565 Omem Atlas and the 1570 Vaz Atlas to touch on what makes them so intriguing. The 1565 Omem Atlas, which is fairly representative, consists of 19 charts, 16 maps, a calendar, a zodiac circle, and an astronomy table. Of these, there are four maps of the Americas, two each of Africa and the Middle East, two, uh, and and Asia, of Africa and the Middle East and of Asia, three maps of Europe, three maritime maps, the Atlantic, the Aegean, and the Adriatic, and two world maps. This division is again striking for its relatively even division of cartographic attention to different parts of the world. Omem completely ignores the familiar Ptolemaic division of land masses, which remained the gold standard for Atlas compilation in this period and for almost a century thereafter. Here, the map maker, has clearly sought to divide up the earth in analytical fashion, attempting not to duplicate territory unless absolutely necessary. 
Similarly, the 1570 Vaz Atlas, now in the Huntington Library, consists of 17 maps, followed by tables for determining latitude from the elevation of the sun, tables pertaining to the Southern Cross constellation, and for adjusting the position of the North Pole Star, and tide tables for the Malabar Coast. Here, too, the division of maps is relatively even, albeit with an emphasis on the Americas. There are only two maps of Europe, three of Africa, two of the Middle East, two of the Far East, and seven of the Americas. It is worth noting that the exactly contemporary 1570 Ortelius Theatrum does not feature any maps of the Americas, though later editions rectify that omission. Even more so than the Omem Atlas, Vaz Duradu's sheet maps emphasize ocean over land. This map of the Pacific from the similarly arranged 1571 atlas is almost entirely of the open sea. <clears throat> it must be noted that it is odd, in fact, to even call these compilations of manuscript sheet maps atlases. They are probably sold unbound in a case, and they use different scales across various maps as opposed to gradually standardized editorial practice in cosmographies. And yet we can clearly discern in them what Jim Ackerman has called the Atlas idea, the conceptual intention to compose a coherent whole, which is distinct from the map book or a personal compilation of a set of curated maps. Significantly, Mercator, uh, Ackerman identifies Mercator as the master of critical map compilation from multiple sources and declares that his Atlas is, quote, perhaps the purest 16th century expression of the Atlas idea particularly since it reflects the combined skills of technical craftsmanship and strategic intellectual ordering. Not only did Mercator draw his own new maps to reflect the latest geographical knowledge, instead of collecting and reproducing others' work as Ortelius had done in the Theatrum, but he also reimagined the arrangement of maps within the Atlas. His editorial and critical influence through the Atlas was also considerable. Its structure became the norm for Dutch world atlases throughout the 17th century, and affected the theory of atlas making even beyond. However, I would argue that Ackerman's benchmarks could be applied equally well to either Omem or Vaz Duradu. Both drew their own maps, attended to the arrangement of the corpus, and produced a critical compilation that aimed to comprehend the entire world. Might Mercator have in fact encountered one of the Portuguese manuscript atlases, which predate his own magnum opus by two decades, a not unlikely scenario? The compositional flexibility of the map set as Atlas harnesses the power of montage as an investigative technique, a means to make and unmake the whole. As Georges Didi Ubermans notes in a recent attempt to recreate Abi Warburg's Atlas project, quote, when we arrange different images or different objects on a table, we are free to modify constantly their configuration. We can make piles or constellations. We can discover new analogies, new trajectories of thought. A table is not made for definitively classifying, for exhaustively making an inventory or for cataloging once and for all, but instead for gathering segments or parceling out the world while respecting its multiplicity and its heterogeneity and for giving a legibility to the underlying relations. We can imagine the sheets of the Omem or Vaz Durado atlases laid out on tables, moved around, compared and commented upon. This affordance connects them powerfully to modern theoretical invocations of the Atlas, which see it potentially as resisting the very fixed historiographical and political narratives within which atlases are so often inscribed. It should be obvious by now why I began my talk by alluding to contemporary digital atlases like the Hopkins COVID dashboard with their mobile shifting format, 
they unexpectedly replicate the formal potential of the manuscript, manuscript map set. We might also consider another such example, the Observatory of Economic Complexity, which was originally imagined as an atlas, its original URL was in fact atlas.media.mit.edu, which brings together maps visualizing international trade in similarly plural, decentered ways. Are there ways in which the manuscript map set can be discussed alongside the ArcGIS-based digital atlas? Are there conceptual affordances and subversive potentials merely analogous or more deeply connected? In this context, I'd like to give a shout out to Whitney Tretin, whose recent RBS lecture explored new vocabularies for digital book history. One of her keywords was format, a term that is central to my own thinking about the alternative histories of the Atlas. If book histories can push beyond materials and production to think about conceptual potentialities, how format makes possible new ways of thinking and seeing, we might usefully connect and shape long histories for complex genres like the Atlas, which live in the interstices between many disciplines, cartography, history of science, art history, bibliography, and media studies, to name just a few. But let me return to historical specificities. I have been suggesting so far that the Portuguese Portland-style manuscript atlases offer a powerful intellectual alternative to the cosmographical printed atlases on two distinct fronts. First, they are a different kind of epistemic instrument, making visible a new cartographic subject based on a maritime imagination and a terraqueous planet. And second, that their methods of compilation as a manuscript map set triggers open-ended interpretive potentials that are often forestalled by a printed corpus and which are thus surprisingly more adaptable for recording and transmitting new knowledge. But merely to identify these manuscript atlases as a new generic innovation and to take seriously their conceptual intervention as an epistemic unit is to raise a host of new questions of, about cartographic practices in the late 16th century. What, for instance, were the circuits of knowledge transfer, production, and dissemination that connected Portugal and to its colonial outposts on the one hand and to a maritime rival such as Venice on the other? Despite the traditional narrative of the hyper-secrecy of Portuguese cartographic knowledge, the renegade Omem working in Venice, a city that welcomed foreign artisans and supported them in a relatively free market, was able to produce a series of universal atlases which appear to record the status of Iberian possessions across the world. His trade in maps and atlases exemplifies how a non-state-sponsored actor could participate in a transnational bibliographic trade as early as the 1560s and 15. 1550s and 1560s. Vaz Duraldo presents an inverse example. Perhaps because he was located in Portuguese India as a state official, he appears to have had access to the most up-to-date information about the empire. But we must also wonder who exactly he was making maps for. Were they destined for a courtly European audience? Were they made for local colonial officers? And what might this tell us about the circulation of cartographic knowledge of the world in South Asia well before the Jesuits presented the Mughal Emperor Akbar with a copy of Ortelius's Theatrum in 1580. Even more interestingly, Vajdarabu's maps are considered to have been the basis for Francis Drake's successful circumnavigation of 1577-1580. The transcript of sailing directions from the, from the Drake voyage uses names known only from the Vajdarabu atlases, two of which were produced in Portugal in 1575 and 1576. Such details raise intriguing questions about the global circuits of cartographic knowledge and bibliographical exchange and the various representational forms they took, each of which may have, had, may have served different audiences, markets, and ends. I'd like to close then, not with a neat conclusion, 
but with a speculative call for more research. The Omem Vaz Duradu atlases clearly challenge narratives of the transition from manuscript to print and of the displacement of the Portolani by the Ptolemaic projections. They ask us to imagine new histories of cartographic knowledge production in the period that remain linked to artisanal individual practice. But they also demand that we look beyond traditional national disciplinary bound histories of mapping to venture into transnational interdisciplinary and global histories. How might we rewrite the afterlife of the manuscript Universal Atlas as the origin story for the digital atlas? How might visions of the universal developed in non-national settings differ from those that emerge from within national imperial ones? How might we reimagine the making of universal forms of knowledge, such as the Atlas, as a pluralistic enterprise that could develop in a range of environments, even those beyond the constraints of the imperial state? Thank you. And I will be happy to take questions. Thank you, Aisha, for that brilliant lecture. Um, I think we're all very um, lucky to be together tonight to think about these issues. And it's really quite wonderful how you've brought so many different formats, not only into dialogue, but how you've used them to open up these questions about how we're working today with these kinds of tools and images. And there's a slew of questions that have come in um, that I will um, begin with. Um, and I'm sure more will come in as we continue to move through them. So the first question that we have here comes from Timothy Hampshire, and he asks the following question. In Lazaro Lewis's map of West Africa, a large castle-like building dominates the landscape. Mm -hmm. Does that allude to a particular place or architectural style? Um, so that's actually a fabulous question. It actually opens a very big can of worms, which is, much of the work on these Portuguese manuscript atlases, it has been done um, for the production of the catalog um, of the Portuguese uh, uh, maps. But for, for most, most of the manuscript, most of the scholarly corpus suggests that these are merely decorative elements. I've done some works trying to track whether there is a connection between the production of these maps and the production of travel narratives or histories, particularly Portuguese histories in this period. And, um, my sort of preliminary conclusions is yes, that these are in fact being co-produced. And so we need to look at these objects such as that castle as being distinctive to that particular place. Um, and in the, in the Luis map, I actually don't know specifically if that castle refers to a particular place, but my hunch is it does uh, based on work I've done with the Vaz Duradu corpus. Um, so there's, there's a sense in which I think we need to stop thinking of these objects as merely decorative, which is how they have been often talked about, but to think of them as being um, empirical in a certain sense, or at least ones that are coming out of contemporary accounts and descriptions. Uh, and so there's much work to be done, I think, in like making the connections between the texts produced alongside these maps that these maps are probably in dialogue with. Great, thank you so much. Next question comes from Alex Hidalgo, who asks the following and it's about political context. He writes, authorities in Spain suppressed cartographic knowledge for fear it would fall into the hands of imperial rivals. Manuscript maps in particular were carefully guarded. Is there evidence of this in the Portuguese context? So again, great question. Uh, the classic story about map making and maps in both the Spanish and Portuguese context in the 16th century is the story of secrecy, of this sense of the 
powerful state surveillance over map makers, the lockdown on maps. Uh, what intrigues me about the small corpus I talk about is there were clearly figures like Diogo Umem who escaped that vice and who took their own map making skills with them, but also retained their networks or their connections to people in Iberia who were working with updated data. Right, so Diogo Omem, who tries to sell himself the service of the English, sort of in England and then in France, and then flees to Venice, a free city where he then becomes a free agent producing maps, is a kind of amazing story of the resistance to this sort of vice of secrecy. And I think it forces us to think hard about, you know, how many other actors there might have been who perhaps are not being tracked by the historical record, who resisted. Uh, the, the sort of state surveillance to be able to take their knowledge elsewhere. Um, there, the story of this so-called theft of the Vazduradu atlases by Francis Drake to be able to um, um, show him the location of the Straits of Magellan for the circumnavigation is another example of this, where clearly there were agents who were buying, selling, stealing, dealing in these atlases that were being produced outside um, the Iberian Peninsula itself, who were able to get these books and these objects to move around, right? I mean, we know very little about the, for example, about the market for the Omem atlases or the circulation of the Vazduradu corpus. Uh, but my, my hunch is that if we think of, if we put these objects into dialogue with recent work in kind of um, sort of global early modern studies, thinking about networks of bibliographical exchange, about the ways in which dealers were moving objects across different countries and different parts of the world. Uh, the old story about uh, the sort of secrecy around cartographic knowledge in Iberia uh, will need to be opened up to account for the resistance to that power of state surveillance as well. So I think that there is a, um, there is a, uh, a story to be told there, um, not perhaps a consistent story, but enough leakage to allow for these cases uh, to be evident. And so I'm actually really eager to know of people who may have done that work. I mean, I'm really interested in thinking about how our historiographical paradigm of secrecy can enable us to simply not see certain other kinds of objects because we're so used to thinking about how this particular tradition works. And so again, I think that these are objects that really force us to think hard about what story we're seeing and what other stories that might be there to tell. Great, thank you. The next question comes from Matthew Edney and builds on a comment that appears a little earlier in the thread. Um, so the question uh, from Matthew Edney is as follows. Um, these atlases were not new. Many 15th century Portolan atlases, such as that by Andrea Bianco, Venice, 1436, mm -hmm. How then do these 16th century atlases represent a new kind of work that represent a stage and transition from humanism to empiricism? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's a really important question. One piece of this talk that I simply couldn't get in for matters of time has to do with uh, the Venetian context in particular, where a number of, sort of luxury um, manuscript atlases are being produced, uh, um, as well as the Bianco and others. Um, and the Battistagnesi is another one who comes to mind as being this kind of beautiful um, sort of manuscript atlas object. The key difference between those kinds of atlases and the Portuguese manuscript atlases I'm talking about has to do with, um, and I hate this word, the relative accuracy of the data that is being recorded there. So those Portland charts represent the Portland tradition that I spoke of as being sort of stable knowledge transfer. They're built on older, Portland atlases going, um, Portland maps and charts going back to the late Middle Ages. And they reproduce that in these sumptuous luxury item books. 
What's different about the Portuguese atlases is that they part ways from the kind of stable knowledge transfer that is there in that tradition to actually incorporate new uh, information about cities, coastlines, places that is actually quite different from uh, the bibliographical tradition of the Agnesi and other atlases, even though, even though they're being produced at the same time. So there's a real question there of how do we understand these objects side by side, right? I mean, like how do they interrupt or disrupt how we understand that particular tradition that we just its culmination in, in Venice again in the 1540s? So uh, I, I couldn't put that in. And it's, I mean, I have questions about this too, because I think, well, you know, how do these things add up and how are they working together and, you know, who knows whom? And so, I mean, again, I just, I will just simply say, I think there's more work to be done to think about how these things intersect. Okay, thanks so much. Um, the next question comes from Morgan, uh, no last name. And Morgan writes, the distinction between fixed authoritative or style printed atlases and fluid open-ended navigational manuscripts is helpful. But was the dichotomy so absolute? Couldn't the maps and printed Northern European atlases be sold as loose sheets, reshuffled, collaged, and otherwise reused in pluralistic ways that also defied a singular vision? Yeah, fair question. And this is something that I've thought a lot about in terms of thinking about how do I characterize um, the distinction between these two objects? Because one of the big questions is, I mean, these printed uh, atlases have come down to us as bound books, but when they were bound and how they were bound and unbound remains an open question, and it's very hard to trace. Um, the one clue that I found in my own research is binders direction. So for instance, the Ruscelli Ptolemy uh, uh, such a, has very distinctive binders instructions at the back. Uh, for how, in what order the maps need to be bound, which is actually really striking and a really interesting uh, insight into how uh, map makers and printers were thinking about the kind of ultimate shape of the book. Um, I did a fair amount of work at one point, just like tracking in spreadsheets, you know, all the kind of world atlases and, and the order of the maps and how they were bound. I mean, because I was just interested in like, is there something different about the Mercator Atlas? I mean, is Mercator thinking about order? And is he thinking about the composite or is he in fact thinking in terms of loose sheets? Um, and I think that the answer is sort of somewhere in between, which is of course these maps were sold uh, as unbound loose sheets to be bound by a binder. Um, but on the other hand, I think it's also important uh, to remember that um, these are being envisioned as composites. They might also be sold as loose sheets, depending on you know, who's buying them and who wants them. They were unbound and then sold as loose sheets at different points of time. But we do have clues that at the point of production for many of these, I mean, the Ponton Press, for instance, that they're being envisioned as a set and as a whole. Uh, and they are envisioned to be bound, hence the presence, for instance, of binders instructions and different kinds of atlases. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's, it is a fair question to say that I'm creating a kind of rigid dichotomy, which I don't really want to do, but it's really a heuristic for thinking about what might be different about this kind of object, the printed bound atlas with its envisioned compositional order versus the lack of compositional order and also size. I think this is crucial. Right, I mean, something that is small and easy to move around is different than something that's big and has to live in a, you know, a fat set. So building on this conversation, David Weimer writes with a question. First a comment, he says, this has been really great, exclamation mark. And then he asks, how do you think about the perhaps symbiotic relationship between the affordances of manuscript and print as you've been discussing them and the demands of the audience of these objects? Yeah, uh, it's, it is a great question and I don't have a good answer. I have a speculative answer, which is, I mean, it's clear that these were luxury objects. Uh, I mean, when I sort of made the sort of slightly facetious this, um, analogy, to, you know, to like vinyl versus Spotify, uh, I mean, I think that there is a point there about, you know, who is buying this, this stuff, 
right? Um, these, I mean, you know, if you look at the Vaz Dorado Atlas, I mean, there's like gold leaf on it. So, I mean, these are clearly um, meant for a high-end luxury audience. And in many of the non-world atlases, I mean, the European map sets and things produced by OMM are of similarly kind of a very extremely high quality. Um, so, so it is certainly clear that if there's a demand for this sort of somewhat retro version, but with up-to-date information that is going to be produced, uh, I simply have not been able to track down actual information about that. Uh, I mean, this is where, again, the um, uh, Matthew Adney's question about kind of the other uh, map books in Venice, Bianco, Agnesi, et cetera, is also relevant because those are also being produced as luxury objects in this period. So that's the kind of useful analogy, uh, but there isn't good information on this. I mean, it's also clear that there was a kind of state-sponsored aspect, but kind of more loosely surveilled perhaps than we have been led to believe. So, so it's an open question. And, and you know, if there are other people who know things, like I'm really eager to find out because I mean, this is very much gonna work in progress as I'm thinking through some of these questions. Great, and I think we have time for one last question. So the last question uh, we have time for comes from Elizabeth Fowler. She asks, what is the relation of the Portuguese manuscript Portolan maps to the stresses within the developing slave trade? Mercantile activity, imperial or national activity, are these economic political tensions evident in these maps? It's a great question. I mean, the short answer is, I is no. I mean, I went to these maps because I was curious about a version of that question. Like, do maps record, you know, some trace of both imperial trade tensions and then things like slavery and, and um, other forms of, um, of control over peoples as well as places? Um, and part of what is so striking about them is there isn't any, I mean, evident trace of that. Uh, I mean, you see some ethnographic details, so you get a sense of like different peoples, for instance, in Africa and, South, and, and Southeast Asia. Um, but it's, it, is, it is hard to read into them that logic. I mean, the trade logic is very clear. It's a kind of navigational logic. I mean, it's particularly striking, for instance, in map sets that begin in South America, move to Europe and Africa, move to South Asia, and then move to North, North America, which is clearly not of Portuguese interest. So there's, there's a sense, there's a logic about maritime trade routes about them. Uh, and of course, that logic carried with it um, the uh, everything we know about the slave trade, but also about kind of the creation and destruction of markets from one place to the to the to the, to the next. So, so I think that is certain. That logic is certainly embedded in the logic of the maritime trade route. Um, but I think it's in 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 the images themselves. I mean, I think it is hard to see actual traces of it, except by implication. Excellent. Well, thank you so much again for this wonderful presentation. Thank you so much. Um, I know that there are many more questions here, but hope that um, people who have um, more to talk about will reach out to you or will perhaps um, follow up. Um, um, this is just one of a continuing series of lectures happening this summer and this event tonight will be um, shared on YouTube. So if you enjoyed it and want to share this with a colleague or a friend, um, you'll be able to do so in about a week. And I just want to thank again, Aisha, and give you a round of applause for your wonderful talk. Thank you. Thank you so much. And if I can just like tell anyone on this call who knows about this material, like I would like to know more because this is really preliminary, preliminary, preliminary work thinking through some of these issues. So I'm really, really grateful for anyone who has like further thoughts or ideas or, or pushback for how this is working or not working. So thank you. Thanks again.